Because this is the other way that God speaks to us. Like 99% of the time, this is the way God speaks to us. It's the same Holy Spirit that gives that quickening of the prophetic. It's the same Holy Spirit that opens the scriptures and impacts your hearts and makes them come alive. So Holy Spirit, we pray that this word that you inspired nearly a couple of thousand years ago to these believers that are scattered around this Roman Empire, you used your servant James to speak words of life and hope and challenge to them. And we believe you're the same spirit again, the same author that inspired James, inspires this to us today. So make it come alive, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's just read the first few verses of James chapter 2. And uh, we'll just unpack it like we did last week and uh, go on the journey that James takes us on. So verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. He is not the senior leader of the church at Junction 10. He's just wearing jeans. Verse 3. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there and sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin you sin and are convinced, convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we're the father's children, remember that's where we finished off in chapter 1. Right at the end. He's saying like father, like son, like daughter, like dad. And he's saying to us, as we grow up, as we mature, we grow into the father's likeness. And so he carries this on here in chapter 2. If we're the father's children, then it should be clear by now, James says, that the father operates quite differently to the rest of this world. Even the religious world. The believers in the book of James, as we said right at the very beginning of this introduction, they're under pressure. And it's beginning to tell. They're beginning to treat people differently. They're showing favoritism to some. They're ignoring others. And James, James is like, I don't know, he's like, he's like the shock jock. He's like, he's like the Radio 1 DJ who just likes to put it out there. He's, he's so blunt. He's so direct. There's no mincing around here. James is direct and to the point saying that there's no point showing favoritism because showing favoritism isn't a family trait. It's not what the father's like. In fact, if you show favoritism, not only are you denying your faith, James says, but you're disobeying God. If you're a Jewish believer, and these are Jewish believers, the Gentile mission hasn't really started yet. And if you're a Jewish believer, and you want to make a point to other Jewish believers, then there's no better character to throw into the ring than Moses. If you want to make a point, then you roll out the big prophet Moses. And this is what James actually does. But you say, well, James doesn't mention Moses here in this particular chapter. Well, actually, there's a reference to it. In verse 1, 
James refers to the glory of Jesus. In your scriptures, it might say our glorious Lord or the glory of Jesus. The, 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 the Greek, the way that James writes, James is like, is like the times. His, his Greek is like the times. All right? it, is, it is posh Greek. It is mature Greek. Greek. It's intellectual Greek. All right? And so James doesn't make mistakes in his Greek. And the impression is here is emphasizing glory. Glory. And if you were a Jew, you would understand the connotation of the word glory. And this is what James is doing here. James is referring to glory. Why? Because it's not just a title, he's making a point. When God revealed his glory to Moses. Remember the story? Can you rewind your mind back through your Bible pages? Exodus chapter 33 verse 18. Moses is full of anxiety about leading his people. You see the parallel? James is full of anxiety about leading his. Moses is full of anxiety about leading his people. In fact, Moses asked the very question that James is asking here, right in this particular chapter. And his Jewish believers would have made the connection. Keep your finger in James and go to the book of Exodus. Exodus 33 verse 16. This is the question that Moses is asking. How will anyone know That you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Remember what we're just talking about. James is saying you're not acting like your father acts. Our father acts differently to this world. He's different. He acts different. Thinks different. James is concerned about leading his people. So is Moses. In Exodus 34 verse 5, God answers Moses' prayer. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord's glory came down. Proclaimed the name of the Lord. You see, the Lord's name isn't just about who he is. It's about what he does. It's about his nature, his attributes, his character. And so the Lord came down to Moses and not just showed him his name, showed him exactly what he's like, his love. His, his grace, his mercy, his power. So when James is using glory, he's using shorthand. He's talking about the presence of Jesus and how God acts. James is saying Jesus is God's glory. He lived with us. He's reminding his people he lived with us. He's reminding his people as James, I, I, saw, I saw Jesus in ways that you never saw him. And now he lives in us, James says. And so we should be the presence of God. We should be glory carriers. We should act differently, think differently. James is asking the same question as Moses. What else will distinguish us from the rest of the world? We live and think and behave differently because Christ is in me, the hope of glory. James shouts to this scattered flock, Jesus wouldn't have done what you've done. So what exactly have they done, what Jesus wouldn't have done? James chapter 2, verse 4. These words come up. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? Have you not discriminated among yourselves? Now, if if you do a study on James, you might find that You know, some people will say, well, this could mean discriminated. You've made false distinctions about members of the congregation. 
You're treating people differently because of a personal agenda. It could mean that. But most commentators actually say James is setting up an argument here and it's a, very, it's a more subtle argument than what you and I would kind of think. See, the word discriminate can also mean to, be, to waver or to be inconsistent. The phrase among yourselves can also carry the sense in your hearts. To be inconsistent in your hearts. Now James has made this argument before. If you flip back to the book of James chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, but when he asks for wisdom, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Verse 8, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. It literally means a double-souled person. They've got two souls. It isn't just they change their mind. It's just that there's two voices going off. He's facing both directions at the same time. That's what he's saying. You can't live facing both directions at the same time. And it's the same argument that James is picking up here. In chapter 2, we've got a group of believers who are trying to face both directions at the same time. That is difficult, isn't it? They're nominally and superficially facing Jesus. But for most of the time, they keep moving away and they're being attracted and they're being drawn by a different set of values, by a different heart, by a different agenda. Divided loyalties then, James says. Divided loyalties. See, God won't share the billing or the glory with anyone or anything else. It comes back to this glory. If we want the glory of God, if we want the presence of Jesus, if we want to be those kind of catalysts in our community, then he will not share billing. And James challenges them and us whether we are fully devoted to the values of Jesus or whether we've got divided loyalties. We sang that amazing song, God of this city. It's an amazing song, a beautiful song, a prophetic song. And I hope you sense that uh, prophetic through it. But our world can't afford a church that tries to face both directions at the same time. Our world can't afford that. Because the world looks on at the church and says, well, what distinguishes you from us? What distinguishes you from us? Our world suffers when God's people have divided loyalties. Our towns and our cities need more of the kingdom of heaven. And you and me are the gateways for which people encounter the glory of God. Take a look around you. Did you know that? You beautiful people. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Because God looks on you and says you are beautiful. Because if you're redeemed, if you've been bought by the price of Jesus Christ, you're beautiful. But what about that? You're the gateway. You're a gateway for people to encounter the glory of God. And if we try and face both directions at the same time, then we become indistinguishable to the values of this world. What brings God's glory? Verse 1, he refers to Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus, James says. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at, he brought the glory of God down. He attracted the glory of God. Look at the life of Jesus. How did he live? The glory of Jesus was that he was rich, but for our sake he became 
poor. While we were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked, he invited us to buy gold for him, that we might become rich. White garments for nakedness, salve for our eyes that we might see. The glory of Jesus is that he establishes not a religion but a family. He deconstructs this elaborate religious system. A simple table is replaced at the center of this faith. A thousand burdensome rules and regulations are kicked out and replaced by two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's Jesus' formula. For bringing the glory of God into our world. Forget the thousand religious regulations. Forget the religious system. Just focus on these two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Don't try and face both directions at the same time. Don't have divided loyalties. But love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you will become glory carriers. Simple, yet costly. That's what I love about the kingdom. Religion makes everything complex. Christendom makes everything complex. We can make everything complex when it comes to faith. But Jesus said, it is really simple. But it will cost you everything. We do it by establishing Jesus' rhythm. And James refers to it. Look at verse 8. It's on there. It's on the screen. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. James calls it the royal rule. Why is it the royal rule? Because the king, the king, took this simple creed and turned it into a revolutionary way of life. It's his rule. It's the king's rule. This is it. Love like this, James says. See, James is ever practical, isn't it? We looked in, in James chapter 1 and he said, do you still love God? And we all said, yes, we still love God. And then James says, well, do you love God like this? And he, and he, and he kind of reduces it down to some really practical ways. Well, the same is in this, in this verse as well. You see, as an 18-year-old lad, I had the reputation of spending endless amounts of time looking in the mirror and preening myself. I did have hair then. In fact, if you go on to the Facebook site, you'll see me with a mullet. Remember a mullet? It was that fashionable thing in the, in the 80s and, and whatever. It was kind of short the sides, spiky on top, long at the back. In fact, I had it so long I could even perm it. I had a permed mullet as well. Yes, bring back the 80s. Fashionable. I was so renowned for a kind of paying attention to myself in the mirror. That on my 18th birthday cake, I had a hairdryer in marzipan. I had a mirror in marzipan. Uh, I had a st- styling gel in, in icing on there on my 18th birthday cake. But the kind of loving yourself isn't that kind of loving yourself that James has in mind. Fast forward 24 years and when I wake up and look in the mirror... It's usually now accompanied by the word, oh, my life. I look rough, smell a bit, breath stinks. But I don't just leave it there. 
I get into the shower. I wash my hair, what's left of it. I put smelly stuff on. I then have a shave. Well, okay, this is an illustration. All right, this is an illustration. I brush my teeth and I sort my hair out. See, in this scripture, that's what James is saying. Love has nothing to do with emotion. I don't look in the mirror and break down and start weeping and say, you poor boy, look at you. Come on, let's get in the shower. Come on, let's go in the shower. No, let's go and brush your teeth. There doesn't have to be an emotion there. Love looks at the need and says, boy, come on, get in that shower. See, there's no emotion needed for me to do that. James is saying there's... You don't have to feel anything before you act. Love is practical. Love does. Love is defined as care and attention. So loving yourself is that you give the due care and attention that you normally do. You feed yourself. You wash yourself. You clothe yourself. You don't have to get emotional about it. That's what love is. That's the glory of Jesus. That's how we're to live so that we bring the glory of Jesus. We're not to have divided loyalties. Here's the second part of the book of James. Let's go back to James chapter 2. You okay? Yeah? Second part of James chapter 2. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. Controversial scripture. That's why Luther ripped James out of his Bible for that one verse. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did, when she gave lodging to the spies and sent him off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, James is is always probing away to see whether what we say we have in God is genuine or not. Do you understand that? He's probing away to see what you say that you have in God is genuine. See, words, as we get to chapter 3, are very powerful. But also words are just words. In chapter 1, James goes all out to test whether we say we love God and actually act like it. In chapter 2, he's dealing about faith. Chapter 1's love, chapter 2's faith. What does genuine faith look like, James says, and have you got it? Have you got genuine 
faith. So to introduce and to answer that question, James gives us four illustrations. And coming up on the screen is a little chart on there. So if you can put the next one up for me. Thank you. And press it again. Is it locked? It should do. Can you reboot it? There it is. There it is. Coming up. Thank you. That's great. So he uses four illustrations. So if you look in your Bibles, you'll see these four illustrations. The first and the last illustration are those. The naked Christian in verse 15 to 17 and Rahab in verse 25 to 26. So they're like bookends on these illustrations. On the first illustration and the last one, it's all about faith in our world. How we engage with our world, how our faith engages with our world. The first illustration, the naked Christian, is an example by James of what faith is not. So don't follow this example, James says. The last illustration in this passage is what faith is. You can see there. It's ineffective in the first one. To each of these illustrations, James gives a little summary verse. If faith isn't producing activity, it's dead. Your activity shows that your faith is alive. Can you click the next one for me, please? It's just really slow, isn't it? Bless. Come on. You can do it. Oh, well. I'll leave you to work on that while you're doing The middle two illustrations is not what faith is in our world, it's what faith looks like in our hearts. And so he uses the illustration of the demons and Abraham. The demons are an illustration of negative faith. This is what faith is not, you're glad to hear. Abraham is the example of what faith is. Let me unpack this for a while in there. Let's turn to the first illustrations. For James, for James the world around us is represented by the naked brother and sister and Rahab. We have Rahab. Rahab's this Canaanite prostitute who identifies herself with, with God's people. And because she identifies herself with God's people, she is considered herself as one of those. And she looks after the needs of God's people. So James, it's easy. Faith has to work. That's what James says. Faith has to work in order for it to show that it's genuine and it's alive. So look in your Bibles. James chapter 2, verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. James 2 verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So the naked brother and sister, James is illustrating to us what faith is not. Seeing the nakedness and the hunger of people and not doing anything about it isn't just limited faith. James says it's dead faith. It's not just limited, it's dead And James is saying, if it's dead, then you'd better be concerned for your salvation. That's why James kind of kicks you in the teeth spiritually. James said, if your faith is dead, then you better be concerned about your salvation. Because you obviously don't believe what you say you believe. Hello, it's gone very quiet in here. You obviously don't believe what you say you believe. However, with Rahab, we have an example of what faith is. Rahab's faith is alive and kicking. 
Her faith is willing to take personal risks, putting her house, her resources, her ingenuity, her personal safety on the line. She's willing to do all of that. And that's living, and that's genuine faith. And that's evidence that what she has is living and genuine faith. Because she does believe what she says she believes. See, nobody puts it as bluntly or provocatively as James. In the whole of the New Testament, James says, If your faith is unwilling to take personal risks to serve the needs of others, then your faith isn't genuine. Sailor, think of that. I'm telling you, it's hard-hitting, isn't he, James? James is blunt. Beginning of the new year. Guys, are you, are you, how are you receiving the message? It's tough. If your faith is unwilling to take personal risks to serve the needs of others, then your faith isn't genuine. It's maybe evidence that you don't believe what you say you believe. What about faith in our hearts? That Rahab and, and the naked brothers and sisters, that's about faith in the world. What about faith in our hearts? Let's go and have a look at it. Again, James uses this negative example, verse 19. What faith is not? The demons who believe and shudder compared to Abraham who believed and is called a friend of God. See, the demons, James says, James says to his Jewish believers, you believe the Shema. Do you know what the Shema is? The Shema is the number one creed of the Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. It's the number one creed. So he turns to his Jewish believers and says, Do you believe in the number one, most important, fundamental, foundational creed in the whole of your faith? Yes, they reply. Good. Even the demons believe that. Wow. Even the demons believe that with all their hearts. But they continue to live as rebellious demons. See, genuine faith changes something in here. The demons believe, but they have no peace. It says the demons believe and they shudder. The word shudder can be fear, fear, terror, literally terror. There is no peace with God. No reconciliation, no life with God. Their fear is in contrast to the peace of God. James is saying genuine faith works in our heart and brings peace. It does not bring fear. Abraham. See, if demons show us what genuine faith is not, then Abraham shows us what faith is. You've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Verse 5. Let's just recap a little bit about Abraham, because Abraham's really important. We're going to end up with Abraham. Genesis 15 verse 5. God took him outside and said, Look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. See, even though the facts that his wife and himself were past the age of producing children, he ignores that human impossibility and his faith is tested to see whether it's genuine and God credits to him righteousness. Righteousness. 
And he's tested on it because he has to wait 25 years. He's old then. But he has to wait 25 years. And James has given us an insight into how God works here. Because according to the story we've just read, God is already convinced that Abraham's faith is genuine. Even before it's tested. He's convinced that it's genuine. So God kind of looks at our belief and says, okay, okay, Andre, you've said this so far, so good. He credits to you as righteousness. But then what God does is he waits. What is God waiting for? He's waiting for the results of Andre's faith. To see whether his faith is genuine. The results, James uses the word, works. He credits to Andre as righteousness for his belief. But then he waits to see what faith produces. He's waiting for the results. With James. See, there were moments in the life of Abraham where it seemed that Abraham's faith wasn't genuine. In Genesis 16... Abraham grows impatient, doesn't he? He wants wants the promise to happen. And so this arrangement is made with Hagar and gives birth to Ishmael. So Abraham doesn't seem to be trusting God. And God's there waiting. Has he abandoned his faith? Has he abandoned his faith? Is his faith genuine? But God's more patient than Abraham. And God's patient with you and me. He gives us second chances and third chances. He goes on the journey with us. He doesn't abandon us. He's faithful while we go faithless at times. And God's patient with him and he waits. And there's another test that comes. The severest test in Abraham's life because Isaac is produced after 25 years of waiting. And just when the promise had come to fulfillment and the blessing to the whole world, which depended on Isaac, God says to Abraham, I want you to kill your son. I want you to sacrifice it. Would he pass this test? Wait a minute. Wait a minute, God says. There's an altar. There's a knife. There's Abraham's precious son. More importantly, God overhears a confession to his servant. In Genesis 22, verse 5, he says, We will worship, and then we will come back to you. This wasn't Abraham's attempt to cover up what he was about to do and stab his son. If you turn to the book of Hebrews, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Who had received the promises about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God has said to him, it is through Isaac that the offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead. See, for James... The demons believe, but it brings no change in here. No change in our hearts. See, for Abraham believed, and there's a change in his heart because he obeys. Faith works. And the emphasis is not necessarily on, on, the, on, on that. It's that. The faith has to do something. Faith actively does something. Abraham believed God. And the evidence for his belief was that he held nothing back. Andre believes God. God waits to see whether his faith is genuine or not. It's looking for works. It's credited to him as righteousness when he believes. But God's waiting. Is his faith genuine? Genuine faith like Rahab reaches out and cares for those who are in need at risk regardless of the personal cost. 
Bottom line, James says, faith has to work. It has to work. James 22, verse 24 and 26 is coming up on the screen. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith faith without deeds is dead. See, verse 24 is the most controversial bit in this whole passage. Because he says this, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Luther looked at that and said, boy, he's preaching a different gospel to Paul. I'm going to rip it out. James is not preaching that salvation is by faith and works. He's not. Salvation is a gift. It is by faith alone. But if faith is genuine, James says, it will involve, produce good works. See, genuine salvation should always lead to a transformed life. If your life doesn't change, says James, it's an indicator that you don't really believe what you say you believe. And therefore, your faith is not genuine. And therefore, you better watch out. Because when Jesus returns or whether you go to glory, you might just not be in the place that you thought you were. That's tough. In verse 22, it says that faith and actions work together. The word is synergy. That's where we get it from. Faith and actions. Verse 26, he uses this amazing illustration. Separate body and spirit and you have a corpse. Separate body and spirit and you have a corpse. Separate faith and works and the body becomes a corpse. Just listen to that prophetically. Separate faith and works and the body is dead. James says, I can't see your faith if you don't have good works. I can't tell whether the body is alive unless I see the body move. If faith is genuine, then it has to work. If the body of Jesus, the church, isn't working, then maybe it doesn't actually believe what it says it believes. If faith isn't genuine then for it's good as dead. See, James in chapter 2 is worried. James in chapter 2 is worried that what he has in his hands is divided loyalties and a dead body. That's what he's worried about. And so he, he writes this letter. He writes this imperative What distinguishes the follower, us, from the rest of the world, James asks, is our ability to love others just as Jesus loved. That's what distinguishes us. A refusal to live facing both directions at the same time. What distinguishes genuine faith from that which isn't is that it sows into the needs of others. It's willing to risk everything. It's willing to obediently listen to the will of God no matter what the cost. It creates in us not fear but peace. That's what genuine faith looks like. So at the end of James chapter 2 we ask the question, is your faith genuine or not? Is your faith genuine or not? 
You can say yes as much as you like. But I won't know. And you won't know. And the world won't know. Unless you have a faith that works. That does something. And the world is waiting for a faith. Of a people of God that works. Let's pray. I'll let the question of James hang in the air. Is your faith genuine? Is your faith genuine? I can't answer that question, only you can. All I know is God is immensely patient with us. Is our faith working? Is it loving others? Is it risking for the needs of others? Is it obediently listening and doing the will of God? Does it have a peace in its heart? Father, I pray and thank you for your word, the challenge of it. May we be a church that lives with a passion, wholeheartedness to you. May we be as a church that the world will look on and say, you know what, I see their faith in action. They love people. They care for the lost, the hurting, and the broken. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to establish that in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.